Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your roundup of the five most fascinating stories in science this week. I'm Penny Sarche in London, and this week my co-host is Chelsea White in Portland, Oregon. Hello. On the show today, we're calibrating a 2,000-year-old computer, using viruses to treat antibiotic-resistant acne, and learning why people overestimate ethnic diversity in their workplaces. All that, plus we've got news of several efforts to contact aliens. Joining us today are New Scientist reporters Matthew Sparks and Jason Muragesu in London and Leah Crane in Chicago. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. And remember, if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a massive 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link is newscientist.com slash pod20. Let's start then with efforts to contact aliens. Okay. (laughs) Uh, New Scientist has had a few recent stories on sending messages to advanced alien civilizations. What's going on, Matt? Are we getting any closer to making first contact? Well, we haven't heard from any aliens yet, but um, on Earth, we've got one team putting forward a new message that they think would be a good one for transmitting to potential advanced civilizations. And then we've got another group who are actually planning to send a message to TRAPPIST-1 from Goonhilly Satellite Station in Cornwall in October. First off, remind me, what's TRAPPIST-1? TRAPPIST-1 is a is a star system. It's 39 light years from Earth, and there's at least seven planets orbiting it, three of which sort of live in the Goldilocks zone, which is the area that life may be possible within. And that new message that the team have come up with, what does it say? Well, a group including Jonathan Jiang at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory have put together a new message called Beacon in the Galaxy, and it adds to previous messages we've sent, uh, like the ones we put on Voyager and Pioneer spacecraft that were shot out of the solar system in the 70s. Mm. It doesn't really have a, a message as such. It's more a collection of information that Earth scientists hope will make sense to alien scientists. Controversially, Beacon in the Galaxy includes details on Earth's location, as well as lots of information designed to teach an advanced civilization more about us and what we know. Uh, so in all, the message contains 204,000 bits, which is 121 times as much data as the Arecibo transmission we beamed out in 1974. 
I don't know if you've been following the social media reaction to some of these stories, Matt, but people are really upset at the idea that we're sending all this information about ourselves out to potential aliens. Isn't it a good idea? I saw that and people were really upset that we were sending our location. Mm. <laughs> like maybe that's the danger. <laughs> yeah, it does seem worrying. I mean, Stephen Hawking was famously against the idea of speaking up and trying to find alien civilizations because um, if you look back in Earth's history, any time an advanced civilization came into contact, the less advanced civilization didn't go so well. And that mm. would, you know, that might play out again. And so that message uh, with all those details, is that the message that the second group is is hoping to send to the Trappist system? No, the second group, METI, which is is like SETI, but instead of just searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, they, they want to proactively say hello. They're sending a message of their own design, which is a little bit simpler. Douglas Vakoch, who runs METI, he told me that he wants to send basic scientific information in lots of different formats. So hopefully one of those different formats makes sense to the aliens. And they're also sending lots of clips of music, which honestly seems to be more aimed at inspiring the public about the idea than it is about teaching aliens how to enjoy Earth music or anything. <laughs> um, you know, we probably need to start with how to count in binary before we expect them to understand how to stream an MP3. Why do we need to send messages to aliens anyway? I mean, can't they already detect us if they're out there? Yeah, there's that common trope in science fiction films that, that alien civilizations are, you know, they're picking up all our radio and television broadcasts way back to the 1930s. But in reality, you need this huge amount of power to send a message light years across the galaxy. And even if you focus it really tightly, which, you know, obviously doesn't happen with radio and TV, you need a massive transmitter. So the messages aren't as frequent as you might expect. There's kind of a varying view of how of the people who want to contact aliens, ranging from like it's extremely fringe and, and not worthwhile, right through to of course they're out there and why shouldn't we? Where do you sort of sit on the line, Matt? Having and, and Leia too, having having covered stories like this for a while. I think it would be sad if they're out there and we're not trying to get in touch. I mean, it's something that would take. I mean, Trappist one is thirty nine light years away, so even a round trip hello is going to take eighty years. We'll all be long gone by then in all likelihood but um it makes sense to reach out to our neighbors if they're there i think and i i tend towards pessimism about whether we'll actually ever be able to contact intelligent aliens just because of how huge space is and also how huge time is but i guess my view on this sort of thing is like why not we can do it <laughs> what's the harm in sending a message that probably no one will hear <laughs> no harm there Right, we're going from space to the face. So next up, Chelsea, you've got news of an acne treatment that could be promising in the face of antibiotic resistance. Yes, antibiotic resistance is a big concern with acne in particular because it's thought to be caused by one bacterium, which is aptly named Cutobacterium acnes. And the usual acne treatments include antibiotics that tackle the bacteria that sort of set up shop in your pores, but they're becoming increasingly resistant to those drugs. Right. So this is a big crisis across medicine. We're, we're just not developing new antibiotics fast enough as bacteria learn to overcome the ones we already have. Yeah, that's right. And one way to slow down the spread of antibiotic resistant microbes is to use the drugs far less. But, you know, in the meantime, we still need to treat certain conditions. So we need to find alternative ways to do that. And in the case of acne, a new study in mice has shown that bacteriophages may be a good option. 
We've had quite a few stories on phages recently. These are those viruses that infect and destroy bacteria, and they're beginning to show promise as treatments for several infections, as well as also we had a story about them keeping our food safe by fighting E. coli and salmonella. It's exciting, isn't it, to have this sort of potential alternative armory? Yeah, absolutely. When I was editing this story, I found out that the word phage is from the Greek for devour, which makes... <laughs> absolute sense. And like you said, they're just, they're really everywhere. I mean, you've got a million billion of them in your gut. Wow. (laughs) So how have they been used to treat acne? So researchers at the Israeli Phage Therapy Center in Jerusalem first isolated eight bacteriophages that are known to kill the acne bacterium. And then they used a single phage to try to kill the bacteria in a lab setting. And the bacteria still sometimes developed resistance, but then they used multiple phages and they combined them with antibiotics, which completely killed off the antibiotic resistance strains of the bacteria. And so then were they able to show that this treatment works outside of a dish on on real skin? Yeah, they found that applying just one of the phages, this time without any added antibiotics, to a mouse's skin that was infected with the acne bacteria that showed significant improvements in the skin's condition compared to control mice. The researchers say this is the first demonstration of phages being used as an application directly on the skin, which is really cool. This same team is hoping to trial this phage-based acne treatment in people soon. But they're also looking at phage therapies for other serious infections that could be life-threatening. And elsewhere in the world, like Belgium, researchers are trialing phage therapy to treat infections from superbugs. So those are bacteria that are resistant to almost all drugs. take a quick break to tell you about an upcoming online event hosted by New Scientist. It's called Why We Love, and the talk will be given by evolutionary anthropologist Anna Matchin. She'll be taking the audience through a roller coaster ride of the why, how, who, and what of human love. Using the latest evidence from neuroscience, genetics, psychology, and physiology, she'll explain how love evolved as a form of biological bribery, and that love sits at the center of what it is to be human. Not only that, but love is also the greatest factor in our health and longevity. To find out more, you can watch the event live on Thursday the 5th of May at 6pm BST or afterwards on demand. For tickets, visit newscientist.com love. And if you favour the head over the heart, you may be interested in New Scientist Academy's new immersive CPD accredited online course called How to Think Critically and Creatively, which is now available on pre-sale. This course will show you how your mind processes information, warn you of the traps it can fall into, and teach you how to avoid cognitive biases and logical fallacies. All with a view to helping you learn how to make better decisions, solve problems, and think more rationally. This eye-opening course is full of tips and advice for any level of learner, and you can enroll for the introductory offer of £99 today. Find our How to Think Critically and Creatively course via newscientist.com courses. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Speaking of cognitive biases, here's a story on one that most of us seem to experience. It's a diversity illusion, which leads us to think that our environments, like schools or workplaces, are a lot more diverse than they actually are. Jason, you reported on this for us. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so this is an illusion that a lot of us seem to experience, in which we think a minority group is actually greater in number than they actually are. Previous studies have shown that people in Europe and the UK overestimate the number of Muslims in their countries, while people in the US generally overestimate the black population. So what did the new study reveal? It's a study by Rasha Kardosh at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and was a large-scale analysis on why exactly this illusion may occur. They did a dozen experiments involving about 942 people. The main experiment they did involved presenting white subjects in the US, a two-second flash-up of 100 faces of which about 25% were black. They did this 20 times in a row with different faces, every time about a quarter being black people. Afterwards, the participants were asked to estimate the number of black faces. On average, they said 43%, not 25%. The experimenters repeated the study with 45% of the faces being black, And again, they saw the same overestimation. This time, people said about 58% of the faces they saw were black. That's a really big overestimation. Is it just white people who experience the illusion? It seems like it affects everybody, actually, even if you're in a minority group. The researchers found, looking at all their experiments combined, about 82% of the participants were affected by the diversity illusion in some way. So why does it seem to be so prevalent? The researchers say it's a cognitive bias, probably. Individuals from minority groups are by definition just less frequent. So we're simply more likely to notice them, and yeah, you're more likely to remember their presence. This leads us to overestimate their presence. So is there anything we can do to combat this diversity illusion? Yeah, the researchers had a few points. Uh, Dr. Kardosh made the point that people, especially those in senior positions and those who make important decisions about diversity and hiring, should not base their policies on hunches or guesses. You need data because otherwise you're probably overestimating how diverse your environment is. On the other hand, in your general day-to-day, another co-author of the paper told me that it's actually really hard to combat this illusion. It's an automatic illusion. We all have it. And just listening to this podcast or reading the story won't stop you having it. You have to fight it actively with every judgment you make, whether that's when you're talking about women in STEM or whenever you hear someone talking about too many diversity hires in a company. Onto a story about a device that some people call the world's first computer, a Greek device that may date back to 200 BC. Leia, tell me about the Antikythera mechanism. What is it, and is it really a computer? So, it's not really a computer in the modern sense. It's a clockwork mechanism that used a complicated series of interlocked gears to make calculations about the movement of the sun and the moon over time. So that sounds a bit more like a watch. Sort of, but like the most complicated fancy watch you can imagine. (laughs) Um, So now that we know what it is, what's new about it? So you know how when you set your watch, you have to set it against a clock that you know is correct? Mm. That time that you set your watch off of is called the calibration time. And a team of researchers in Greece thinks that they have found the calibration date and time for the Antikythera mechanism, which would be the date that its users would have set it to in order for its calculations to go properly. 
That's really cool. How did they do that? So it was a super complicated process. A lot of the work was done by looking at inscriptions found on the bronze plates that made up the front and back of the mechanism and consulting these sort of functioning models that researchers have made of how it actually worked. One of the big things that we know from all that study is that in order for the designers to have been able to set the device easily, the calibration date had to be a date where there was a solar eclipse and a date when the moon was at its farthest spot from Earth on its orbit. So then you just have to go back and look at dates where we know there was a solar eclipse and the moon was far away? Yep, exactly. And NASA has this big database of eclipse calculations. So the researchers looked in there to find unusually long-lasting eclipses, which occur when the moon is particularly far away. And they found one that matched the time period when we think the Antikythera mechanism was built. So, drumroll, what was the date? (laughs) Uh, The team is saying that it is sunrise on December 23rd, 178 BCE. I love that. It's so specific. Can can they be sure? (laughs) So after they found the eclipse, the researchers looked into that particular date a little bit more. And they found that a few astronomical events of cultural significance happened then, including a major religious festival at the time and the winter solstice. There's actually on the front of the mechanism at the top left an engraving about the winter solstice, which these researchers reckon is a sign that it's particularly important because in a book, that's where you'd put the first thing. So that would fit with the date that they came up with. But other people who researched the mechanism told me that they were pretty skeptical about this final determination because there have been several other groups that used different methods and found the calibration date to be in May of 204 BCE. Still very specific, but different. Um, So it's definitely still a controversial question. Lastly, we've got self-aware monkeys. Penny? Yeah, so this is a study that looked at a particular kind of self-awareness called interoception, and it found that rhesus macaques seem to be as sensitive to their own heartbeats as human babies are. So what is interoception? It's this ability to detect your own internal state, so things like your heartbeat or your breath. And sensing internal things like these is thought to influence stuff like our emotions and our mental health and and actually be really quite important. And it was thought that rhesus macaques probably have this ability too, but now it's been experimentally tested. How do you exactly go about testing something like that in a monkey? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite quite an interesting uh, problem to solve. The team did it by monitoring the heartbeat of four captive-born adult macaques while they watched videos of basically a blobby image bouncing. And the blob bounced slower, faster, or at the same rate as the monkey's heartbeat. And I should say, actually, that the monkeys participated voluntarily in exchange for sips of fruit juice. I'm glad they were compensated. Um, (laughs) How did this blob watching tell the team anything about interoception? Well, they used eye tracking technology and found that the monkeys watched the images for significantly longer when they were out of sync with their heartbeat, suggesting that they found it surprising. Right. This is similar to what we see in babies, right? Yeah. um, So it's a real classic of baby experiments where if a baby looks at something a long time, we say, oh, they must be surprised and think that's interesting then. So kind of applying the same principle to monkeys. And in fact, the whole experimental setup was adapted from another team setup for studying interoception in babies. That's really cool. But how significant is it? 
I mean, does sensing your own heartbeat really make such a difference to, you know, your emotions and your well-being? Yeah, there is quite a lot of evidence for this. So, for example, in a clinical trial of more than 100 autistic people, participants were trained to better tune into their heartbeat, and it actually led to a significant drop in their anxiety issues longer term. So there's hope that by better understanding interoception, we can help people with a number of issues ranging from things like anxiety and depression, but also to things like Alzheimer's disease. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Please do rate and subscribe to our show and recommend us to all your friends. Thanks to our guests, Matt Sparks, Jason Murugesu and Leah Crane. I'm Penny Sarche. And I'm Chelsea White. Thanks and see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.